0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, I'd like to introduce to you uh, my next guest on the show, Rick Hansen, a good friend. Uh, Rick, as many of you know, has written a number of New York Times best-selling books, including Buddha's Brain, and most recently, neurodharma. What's interesting is, many of you may not know, is that Rick graduated from UCLA summa cum laude at age 16 and has had a variety of jobs actually since then, one including development of risk analysis profiles for things such as the odds of a nuclear power plant melting down. But following that, he obtained his master's degree in psychology and ultimately a PhD in clinical psychology. And actually his first book was actually about mothers. And it was called Gratifying Control, Mothers Offering Alternatives to Toddlers. But certainly his most recent work has been quite powerful as well. One of the first was Buddha's Brain, which I very much enjoyed. In addition to his most recent book, Neurodharma, he has also written Just One Thing, Hardwiring Happiness, Resilient, all of which have been bestsellers. Rick and I are going to talk about his own path as well as his views on many aspects of psychology and meditation, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for being here with us, Rick.
1: Well, I'm Rick Hansen, and I was about to tease my friend, Jim Doty, about physicians who I really appreciate. I think one of the wonderful things that's happened in the last couple hundred years, the advent of medical science and amidst profound failures of the executive branch of the U.S. government, uh, what's really come through has been layers and layers and layers of physicians and healthcare workers and people pushing brooms at three in the morning down hospital hallways. All that said, when I was in training, my supervisor, a psychologist who was married to a physician, I told him the story once about how it just was starting to irk me that I would be doing therapy with my clients they'd wander into their GP or their OBGYN or somebody else who would then suddenly tell them to do something different from the path that they were on with me. And it was just annoying. And like, don't they respect other professionals collaboration? I would never tell my clients what to do with their medical care. Um, I might say, well, you could always get a second opinion, but that would be the max. And uh, I said, what do they do? Do they have like a course in medical school and arrogance? You know, and my my supervisor said... Yes, they
0: do. Yes, they do. (laughs) That's
1: right. He said, no, all of medical school is a training in arrogance. Yes, yes. Although a physician friend of mine, uh, actually at Harvard, said to me, well, Rick, it's because we have such obligations, and actually they so far exceed our skillful means. The truth is, most of the outcomes are really out of our hands. And so to deal with that, some physicians move into this know-it-all stance to manage the disconnect between what they know and what they're called to help with. And I thought that was quite touching. So there you have it.
0: Well, but you know, I, I just to delve on that for a minute, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very true. I mean, uh, we're asked to solve problems that are very challenging and sometimes we don't have the ability or even trying our best, we fail. And for many people, that's a a very challenging burden. And as a result, instead of getting closer to a patient or their family, they pull away. And now some of them are very narcissistic and uh, uh, self-absorbed, and that's a different subset. But I think for a lot of physicians who act that way, in some ways, they don't want to admit their own failure, and they want to protect themselves from the pain and suffering that taking that directly on their shoulders would entail. And it's interesting because, of course, in my job, I deal with people who are dying or going to die fairly quickly. And when you're in that position with the patient, many physicians pull away. And what they do is they pull away, recommend hospice care or you know transfer them to an internist who's going to transfer them to hospice care and then never see the patient again but uh, that's not ever really been my style and uh, i've always gotten along well with the palliative care folks and hospice people and you know one of the i think greatest lessons you can experience is actually be with somebody somebody who's dying because you know these people have incredible insights and it tells you a lot about yourself, you know, when you're dealing with one of these people and and actually holding their hand as they pass, I think that's actually... A very profound experience. You know, earlier, I think before we started recording, you were commenting on your feelings towards, you know, healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, uh, janitors, et cetera. And, you know, one of the things I always say is you can always tell a good doctor because when he walks in to the floor, he knows the nurses by name he uh, acknowledges the people who are cleaning the bedpan, sweeping the floors, and there's you know, an interaction. The arrogant type of physician you were talking about is the one who walks in, doesn't acknowledge anybody, immediately starts making demands, looks down on the people who are sweeping the floors, and thinks of himself as being very important. You know, I always tell people, I cannot function without everyone on the team working together. And so my own success is a manifestation of those individuals. So, so even in the operating room, if I get upset, I typically don't raise my voice or get upset at others. I first look at myself and think about how I failed. And it's one of those stimulus versus response where you pause and then you reflect and then you uh, hopefully uh, manage in a much more thoughtful, discerning way. But alas, I am not perfect in every instance. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I wanted to talk about Neurodharma, your uh, most recent book. You know, there was a quote in there from Reverend Angel uh, Coyote Williams, who obviously you know, and who's also a friend of mine. And she had a quote that said, the Dharma understanding peering into the nature of reality is not specific to Buddhism. The Dharma is truth, and the only choice we really have is whether to try to be in relationship with the truth or to live in ignorance. And in some ways, I think that's the nature of this book because you're sharing a truth that's of course independent of religion or other secular practices, but it's a fundamental truth that's also found in all of them. So that's what I would like to talk about. I would also like to read a little bit at the opening of the book, and then I think that'll set the stage for you to um, give us your thoughts, enlighten us, and maybe help many of us along a uh, more clear path, if you will, to the top of the mountain. So uh, what I'd like to read from the book is the following. I've hiked a lot in the mountains and sometimes a friend further up the trail has turned and looked back and encouraged me onward. Such a friendly gesture, come join me and watch out for the slippery ice. You can do it. I've often thought about those moments while writing this book, which is about the heights of human potential, about being as wise and strong, happy and loving as any person can ever be. Those who have climbed this mountain come from different cultures and have different personalities but they all seem alike to me in seven ways. They are mindful, they are kind, they live with contentment and emotional balance through even the hardest times. They are whole and authentic. They are present here and now. They speak of feeling connected with everything and a light shines through them that does not seem entirely their own. And remarkably, you can see some of these qualities already deep down inside yourself, even if they sometimes are covered by stress and distractions. These ways of being are not reserved for the few. They are opportunities for all of us, and we'll be exploring how to develop them in the seven practices of awakening. Steadying the mind, warming the heart, resting in fullness, being wholesome, receiving nowness, opening into allness, finding timelessness. So I have opened the stage for you to comment and I will listen and perhaps comment.
1: Well, I'm very touched, Jim, by that way of introducing things and about myself. So I have these sort of three streams running through me one is clinical psychology the other is uh neuroscience and the third is contemplative wisdom so all those three streams have informed uh this book and my own work and what it's about is exactly what you read the upper reaches of human potential which are very important to recognize this, so useful down in the trenches of everyday life. The qualities that we can see in people who are very far along, including farther along than I am, um, are really helpful when you're dealing with stress. It's useful to have a lot of emotional balance. It's useful to have strong, steady mindfulness. It's useful to have an open, caring, warm heart as you deal with things like the coronavirus. And so uh, what the book's about essentially is drawing on the latest brain science and applying it to the most penetrating roadmap or analysis of the mind I know, which comes from the original teachings of the Buddha, and then exploring the combination of what neuroscience can plausibly tell us about what's going on inside our bodies, notably in our nervous system whose headquarters is the brain. What's going on inside your body when you are really calm and clear and loving and wise? And then, How can we reverse engineer from that and turbocharge and support and draw upon the factors those neurobiological factors so that they become increasingly established in you so that you the reader or you the listener are increasingly rested in a quality of steadiness lovingness fullness wholeness nowness allness and timelessness. So that's what the book's about. And I allowed myself to write in a more, it's my sixth book, in a more poetic, lyrical, go for it kind of voice. No holds barred in the book. And it's thoroughly practical too, because it's a book of practice. It's not a book of theology. It's sort of trans-religious. These seven qualities, uh, when perfected, seem to me to define enlightenment, God realization even at the highest level. But these seven qualities are also used in all the great paths, whether they're secular paths or spiritual paths, the shamanic indigenous first people paths, all of them draw on these same seven qualities, steadiness, lovingness, fullness, and so forth, uh, no matter what route you take up the mountain. And so for me, it was fantastic to dive deeply into the coolest, most penetrating wisdom about who we are embedded, actually embedded, actually embodied, objectively embodied in the living body. How does the living body make the awakening process? And how how can we use plausibly the latest science about that for our own sake and that of others as, as our own growth ripples out and touches and helps them too?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned Buddhism and at the same time acknowledged that these different traits are essentially found in every religious or spiritual practice. And
1: And secular paths of self-actualization and and these days secular mindfulness. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And so in some ways, this is something that has been within us as a species uh, for a very, very long time. And interestingly, before if you will, there was neuroscience or these uh, more complex studies of psychology and neuroscience. Experientially, people found these truths and certainly Buddhism provided a taxonomy for defining them, but it is uh, universal, as you were saying. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and I think too, of my experience rock climbing, I've done a lot of it. I would watch people who are better at it and I would kind of study on them, how do they do that thing, right? And then I would sort of feel like I'm kind of channeling them, where I'm trying to grow a little bit into how they are about that. And we can apply that same approach to anybody. I mean, frankly, Jim, I've watched you do certain things, and I've thought to myself, oh, that way he's thinking about that is really useful. I got to think more about it like that. Or, well, that way of saying it, or that nice gracious, genteel, welcoming. Uh, I like that attitude. I want to learn more about that. You know, we study people like that. Uh, there's a Buddhist saying that it, uh, your mind takes its shape from what it repeatedly rests upon. Where do you dwell? Where does your heart dwell? Where do you dwell? So, and then how can you fully accept and honor and be authentic about what you're feeling in the moment? Angry about this, scared about that, worried, lonely, whatever it may be. How can you both accept and include what you're really feeling in the present while continually leaning, leaning in the direction of what calls your heart. So you increasingly dwell there and those ways of being increasingly dwell in their fullness in you.
0: You know, it's it's interesting because one of the challenges, and if you wanna say, as you're looking up at the mountain uh, from the plane is how do you deal with your own brokenness,
1: mm, right,
0: or trauma, because so many of the things that make people suffer are experiences there in their childhood, and this can be, you know, from poverty or associated uh, situation with parents and drug abuse, mental illness. Or it can be in affluent families who have everything, but frankly, in some ways have nothing. Children are ignored. Everything's about possessions. Everything's about appearances, but there's no authenticity. I think that everyone yearns at some level, although there may be so much baggage that they carry that limits them, if you will, seeing through the glass clearly. But what is it that can sort of get them over it and sort of make that? First step, if I'm just trying to poke at you from a psychologist's perspective, but also from a Buddhist practice perspective,
1: 100%. Well, one, I think it's uh, useful to appreciate that many of the people that we recognize as far along, who've gone a long way, have had a lot of trauma in their own personal history. So it's not that trauma or a life of great suffering is an inherent block. It's not, if anything, sometimes it's a real goad to practice, to trying to figure out what to do. What I like to do with people who've had a really tough life, and also, frankly, it's what I like to do in my own practice, is first to feel the feelings experience the experience, be with it. That's the primary practice. We have to start there. Maybe we just touch it a little bit. I feel like I've emptied the bucket of tears from my childhood. Painful, not abusive, but very painful and unhappy. I've emptied that bucket one spoonful at a time. That was what I could handle. Okay, so that's primary. And also, I have a little saying, deal with the bad, turn to the good, take in the good. Also alongside that sorrow, that loss, that anger, that addiction are other things. And as a person strengthened those other things, then they become more able to process and deal with and manage and compensate for and gradually heal and even release all that old cruddy material, all that old difficult stuff. And so for example, just sort of stabilizing the sense inside yourself of some place of stable well being inside. Like as you exhale, your body naturally relaxes and your heart naturally slows. In that moment is a little sense of growing calm. As you look around and you see people that you respect, you have a feeling of camaraderie with, maybe there's a person who's friendly with you or your, your cat, your dog, your pet, there's some kind of warmth coming towards you. As you rest in the heartfeltness of that, the ordinary super normal down to earth feeling of that, that feels too like a, like a refuge, like a place where you can take your stand. Uh, Right there, the sense of a little bit of calming in the body, a little bit of open-hearted, warm-heartedness is a place where you can stand that's separate from, that can stand apart from that pain. And from this stand place, then you can become, become much more effective at dealing with that crud. And you can also, over time, as people do, gradually take in the good gradually through what's called positive neuroplasticity, gradually hardwire literally into yourself, into your emotional memory, the mood of what it's like to be you. Bit by bit, drop by drop, day by day, you can gradually cultivate a little bit more of a sense of underlying gratitude, underlying sense of your own worth, uh, underlying kind of hopefulness in your purposes in this life so that you're more and more, that's who you are. You're rested there. It's learning, it's growing. Uh, roughly two thirds of the variation in how we all turn out is acquired. It's not baked into heritable factors that are essentially hardwired. We can't do anything about. So that two thirds of who we become, uh, that's acquired is open to opportunity, right? Uh, which calls us to help the world be as good as it can be, because that's a major source of those factors in terms of who we become, but also help people from the inside out to make the most of the life that they have. So it's, it's very hopeful. I think we always have to respect and start with what it's like to be you right here, right now. And then the question becomes, okay, in a little real authentic way, how can you grow a little today? How can you heal a little, how you can grow a little? And again, very important, Internalize the fruits of your effort today so that you take them with you tomorrow?
0: Well, I think in some ways, uh, part of what you're talking about is this idea of self compassion. Because, you know, a lot of people carry this baggage of, uh, you know, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, and uh, are constantly beating themselves up. And, and, and sadly, oftentimes, especially, you know, children who've had difficult times. They believe that the cause of the difficult time is some inherent problem with them. And I, I, th- I, I think overcoming that is a challenge. And one of the other things I think, and in some ways it's like COVID, you know, uh, I was having a conversation uh, with my wife early on, and she says, I, I don't like this. I refuse to do this. I don't want to do this. And I said, pushing it away and pretending it's not there is not going to help you. Accepting that this is here and that nature of acceptance actually decreases your own suffering. And I think that's also for a, a problem for people. It's uh, in some ways even accepting your shadow self that you don't like, uh, but realizing that it's an inherent part of you. And the more you push it away, actually more often it shows its ugly head
1: mm-hmm. yeah if a person is really flooded by um psychological difficulties then i think it's i'm a long-time therapist been doing that for about 30 plus years 35 years maybe and yeah let's get at that deal with the bad right on the other hand i think there are a lot of people and i suspect a lot of them are listening to you right here today i think there are a lot of people who've done a little bit of inner work. Maybe they've done a little therapy or they've taken a course, they've read a book, and maybe they've done a little bit of practice and and they're good, they're good. And part of them is wondering, okay, what are the possibilities from here? What are the possibilities from here? And I think if a person is just not interested in that, fine, turn the page, no worries. But if you are interested in that, I think it's really important to dust off the vision of the possible that was so prominent in the culture in the 60s and 70s, and then has gotten shoved to the wayside for all kinds of different reasons. And yet that vision of the possible is at the heart of all the traditions, right? It's, and it's got a long tradition in psychology, the vision of the possible, Jung, Freud, not so much. <laughs> You know, normal neurotic. Uh, that was about yeah, as good yeah, yeah. as, that was his vision of the possible. young kept going. And then we have Maslow and the humanistic psychologists, and all the rest of that. And then we have now the mindfulness revolution and a real vision of what it's really like, truly, to have the kind of heartfelt equanimity of, let's say, the Dalai Lama, whose picture I'm looking at over your uh, photograph, over your right shoulder here. And so I want to just underline that. I want to underline that. And maybe it's, not an accident that I'm writing this book in the last third of my life. Cause I'm too, I'm really interested in this, but I just think it's super cool. I'm the kind of person when I went out into wilderness with my friend, uh, we had a friend, uh, and they were both physicians, by the way, my friends are physicians, but anyway, one of my friends, he just wanted to sit in that camp chair, smoke his cigar and read his book. And he was like, that was it. I'm done. I just want to sit here by the river. Okay. My other friend, Bob and I, longtime rock climbers, we'd be looking around, you know, hey, look at that. That'd be kind of cool to stand on top of, right? Yeah, well, let's see if we can get up there. And we would wander up there and we eventually usually stand on top of that hill or summit or something or other. And I just think, yeah, the peaks draw us, the heights draw us. Why not? Why not go for it? At least a little bit every day. Right. And so the book is very much grounded in science of all this. And that's maybe we'll talk a little bit about that and some of the kind of cool examples. But to me, that's the spirit. Why not go for it? I just feel like we live in a time that has flattened our vision of the possible. Screw that, heck with that, you know? Come on, let's go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm excited. Let's come on, <laughs> Jim, let's <We're>, do it. <laughs> uh, well, well, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because, you know, for so many people, they have a vision of what they're afraid of, which doesn't match the reality of that, and uh, it's this being scared, if you will, to hang over the abyss without a safety net, I think is very, very challenging uh, uh, for so many people. Well, I agree, and
1: don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Let me give you a funny little example. I'll give you two examples. So one, a lot of people, try to meditate a little bit. They think, oh, it'd be good to meditate. You know, a lot of research, right? At this point, thousands of papers on the value of some form of meditative practice. It kind of doesn't really matter which one you do. It really matters that you do something, all right? But it's hard for a lot of people. You know, they sit down and their minds start bouncing around. It's hard for them to feel stable. And so they don't like it, they feel like a failure, they don't do it, they don't stick with it. Here's a really interesting finding. You're a neurologist. You may have known this already. Blew my mind when I came across it.
0: Now, you never call a neurosurgeon a neurologist. Oh, I
1: beg your pardon. I can't believe I crossed that line. Like the third rail of medical practice. Yes, exactly. Oh, I I don't know. (laughs) I need to draw up all my equanimity to manage. (laughs) So sorry about that. Okay, great. You know something about the three pounds of tofu like tissue inside the coconut. Yeah, that's
0: what, yeah, exactly. That's how I call it. Okay, that's good. That's good.
1: Well, anyway, you. You may know this already. Uh, If we're gonna have a steady mind, if we're gonna stay focused, like staying focused on this conversation or staying focused on your breath or staying focused in an afternoon meeting when you're drowsy and your mind's wandering, what that means operationally is that the contents, what's being held in the neural substrates of working memory is stable. You're just staying with the breath. Let's say you're trying to do that. And that means that that's what you're aware of. And there are these neural substrates in the upper outer frontal regions uh, right behind your forehead. And uh, they have a kind of gate. And when that gate is closed, you stay steadily focused on whatever you wanna focus on. So the question becomes how to get control of that gate. The gate is regulated by dopamine. Dopamine, neurochemical tracking reward, the expectation of reward, reward, fancy term for things feel good or could feel good. Well, when dopamine levels are steady, when there's a steady feeling of reward, enjoyability, meaningfulness, well, you stay focused on your on your thing. When that sense of reward drops, dopamine levels drop, the gate comes open, new inputs can come in, or if there's a spike of potential reward, a spike of dopamine that also pops the gate open. Well, there's a traditional meditative method that draws upon feelings of happiness and contentment and tranquility and even bliss as factors that help you stay steadily focused. How might that work in the brain? Well, if you're experiencing steady levels of pleasure and happiness and contentment as you meditate or breathe, you're gonna stay steadily focused on on your breath. Also, if you experience high levels of gratitude, contentment, peacefulness, even a kind of deep pleasure in your body, you're gonna get dopamine at its ceiling so it cannot get a spike, which will keep the gate closed and promote steadiness of mind. Happiness is skillful means in the pursuit of stability of present moment awareness. Isn't that the coolest thing?
0: No, and and it's truth, right?
1: Yeah, and a lot of people, their meditation is dull, it's boring, they don't get it. But if you meditate on gratitude or meditate on lovingness, or you just kind of weave that in the blend, you know, you bring that into the mix. So you're kind of happy, even opening to quite powerful feelings of like, wow, ah, let's say awe in your body, that's gonna help you stay focused. And there's a really cool underlying neurological mechanism that's one of the features of this process. Like that's pretty useful to know about.
0: No, you know, it's interesting. My own personal practice is, uh, you know, I'll wake up and I'll uh, breathe, but I'll think of this idea of joy and awe, and then it fills you with uh, this incredible, powerful feeling that, you know, gets your attention. And then I go through my own alphabet of the heart, but of course in that is uh, uh, gratitude and uh, forgiveness and compassion. And I find that a very powerful practice, if you will, to set my own intention uh, for the day.
1: Yeah, and to be really clear, the kind of thankfulness or warmheartedness or sense of mystery and awe that I'm talking about can be experienced alongside very understandable concerns about money, other people, issues of one kind or another. And so uh, we're not trying to deny the bad. We're not trying to cover it over. This is not positive thinking. It's not rose-colored glasses. It's resorting to the good that we can alongside the bad in part because as we turn to the good, as we have more sense of thankfulness, more sense of our own worth, more sense of uh, kind of a deep inner peace, we become much more able to deal with the
0: bad. Well, and I think this is the uh, nature of resilience. Mm. In a deep way,
1: yeah, in a very deep way. That's interesting, yeah, that's really true.
0: Yeah, because you have to have those attributes to, oftentimes be able to deal with um, you know the difficult challenges in your life. It, it's interesting you spoke about equanimity. I always tell people that uh, you know having these wonderful things happen in your life where you, you want to relive them, you get an award or you win a race or you climbed uh, you rock climb to the top of something and you feel this, wow, that's incredible. I did this. but you know oftentimes those feelings are very transitory, yeah. And then you think about the times that have been most challenging and difficult and frankly painful. And then over time though, you realize it is those experiences that you've learned your greatest lessons. And it's really made you who you are and has given you the insight and the wisdom and a vision of life, part of which is uh, acceptance. You know, at the end of my pool actually, and I don't know if I've told you this story, I bought a modern art sculpture at a charity auction actually that the Dalai Lama Foundation had put on of which I was the chairman at the time, but it was a headless Buddha and it was holding in its hands a persimmon. And when I sit in my jacuzzi (laughs) after a challenging day, I'll look at that and I'll think first, not to get lost in my head, Uh, but the other aspect is um, the nature of persimmons. You know, they start out bitter and hard, but if you're patient and time passes, they become uh, sweet and soft. And I think oftentimes, many of the experiences that we have that at first are very, very hard, when we reflect back, there's this sense of uh, that there was a reason that you learned something and that you have gratitude for that.
1: Yeah, um, I get that. I want to push against the cliche generalization that it's through pain that we, that we get the greatest gain. I just don't think that's true. I think, first of all, most pain has no gain. And second, people have, get a lot of gain from experiences. They get a lot of healing, they get a lot of growth, they get a lot of value, including a sense of fulfillment in this life through experiences that don't have much pain in them at all, certainly are not major life challenges like the pleasure of raising our children, let's say, or feeling close and loving with another person or having a mentor. Little thing here, Jim, in our history, um, kind of when I was starting to come up <laughs> From the ranks, <laughs> come out of the weeds. Uh, I don't know what seven, ten years ago. I have no idea. Time. What is time anyway? Uh, you were kind to me and supportive. You were like a bit of a benefactor. You know, you opened a door. You gave me a hand. You gave me a nod. I remember that. That helped me. That touched me. That was validating. So I, I think there's a lot of uh, of the growth that we get through beneficial experiences. Many of which are quite mild. Some of which are really their standouts. The question is, can we internalize them? Can we really take them in? Now, I'm not speaking against the kind of learning that can happen through terrible experiences. And uh, there's a line, that sorrow tenderizes the heart, for example. And that's certainly true. And I've I've had gains certainly through that way. And I think there are some things that you only learn through great pain. That's certainly true. But that's not the only pathway. And I think it's one that the culture tends to emphasize, which is kind of weird to me because it's just not true.
0: A little bit in contradistinction to what you're saying, you know, uh, (laughs) damn you, Uh, (laughs) is uh, actually, I'm probably speaking more of Uh, hedonic happiness or this feeling of happiness from acquiring things or getting things or doing something, not, you know, the tender moments you were describing of raising your children. Uh, So I think there's a slight distinction there. That that was the difference I was trying to make, right? That's the fool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the fool's code. But there is this trope,
1: this common saying. People just sort of throw it off and everybody goes, yeah, it's true. And it's not true that, uh, you know, our greatest lessons come from our greatest sorrows. Well, for some people, maybe their greatest lesson came from their greatest sorrow, but often it's from other sources. And that doesn't mean to me, uh, as a argument for you know being Pollyanna-ish, although somebody once corrected me when I made that point and said Pollyanna was pretty cool, actually. Pretty cool. (laughs) I'm like, oh okay, I better read the book. (laughs) And I have not read the book.
0: Yeah.
1: Hey, you want another weird example uh that I got so uh and maybe we'll even get a chance to talk about these extraordinary non-dual awakening experiences that people sometimes have and you can have tastes of them which which i've had uh, if not the full package like what in the world is going on in the brain when people have these like oneness experiences where where the self just drops out in the sense of everything the universe the world the infinite just shines forth radiantly what's going on in the brain you know there's some really interesting plausible theories about that that then turn into practical practices we can actually do. But before I get there, I'll just say one thing that I have found really useful is this research that shows that when people are doing task-oriented things, often with a sense of inner pressure, or they are mind-wandering and lost in the ruminator, they're engaging the midline of the upper cortex. So if someone listening were to draw or watching were to draw a finger across the middle of their head from the top of their forehead, roughly toward the back, just before it starts to roll over, that midline network is very involved in, you know, getting stuff done and spacing out happily, but it's also involved in a lot of suffering. There's a lot of mental time travel in it where we're worried about the future and critical of the past, resenting the past, and there's a lot of self baked in to those midline activations, whether we're more engaged in task oriented problem solving in the front or in the default mode network so called in the simulator you right. know the ruminator yes. in the back okay on the other hand when you or i or anyone is really in the present moment practicing mindfulness, being with things as they are, without a lot of commentary, not adding a lot of reactivity to them, Uh, not much sense of self, just in the present, less less verbal activity, more nonverbal. We activate networks on the sides of the brain, notably the right side for right-handed people, because that's the hemisphere that's very involved in gestalt, holistic, nonverbal processing. And so if a person takes on a little practice, which I've started doing a lot, of feeling your body as a whole, or you could get a sense of the room as a whole, let's say, or any situation as a whole. Just that, that sense of things as a whole naturally pulls you out of midline cortical activity, brings you into the present, and reduces the sense of self, bingo. And so now routinely when I just am talking with people or guiding a meditation, I'll include getting a sense of breathing while feeling your chest as a whole, left and right together, front and back together, breathing while feeling your chest as a whole, expanding to breathing while feeling your body as a whole. People can do these little experiments. Within half a minute, you'll notice your consciousness starts to shift. There's less sense of self, you're more in the present and a lot less suffering just through that underlying neurological process. Like, that's pretty cool. And that's part of what that fourth practice is in my book of being wholeness, feeling whole, everything included, nothing left out.
0: Uh, what do you think of psychedelics, just to? Uh,
1: that is a good question. Well, I've done my <laughs> fair share. It's been a while. Um, fair amount of acid, psilocybin, MDMA, ecstasy. That's kind of what I did. I think that for me, at least, uh, some of it was entertaining, some of it was upsetting, some of it was really useful. And I kind of have a hunch that it's like that. On the other hand, I think now with the latest clinical use, I haven't done this myself, but I have very credible friends, some of whom are high-level academics, you know, like places like Harvard, maybe who knows, Stanford too, uh, who are doing journeys these days or working with other people to enormous benefit. So I think it's just really exciting. And I'm very pragmatic, you know, whatever raft, whatever vehicle gets you where you need to go, given you your situation and all the rest of that, as long as it doesn't hurt other people, great. How about you? What do you think of them?
0: Well, I, uh, you know, I actually gave a talk at the psychedelic science meeting in 2013 Ah. And it was interesting. (laughs) What do you call, psychonauts, right? Uh, Not yet. Like you were a psychonaut. Psychonaut. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And you know, this was an academic conference, but interesting because of the nature of the topic, there were a lot of others who had attended, right? Uh, And um, uh, it was funny because what I was trying to connect was the reality that through some of the practice we've been talking about, these can deal also with many of the existential crises that people experience, and you don't necessarily need to do the the uh, psychedelics, although they could be very beneficial. And certainly, I think, and sadly, you know, uh, during the 60s and the time of Nixon, you know, he was so afraid of that, as well as the general population, they shut down all this research which was beginning to demonstrate some very positive aspects. And You had these researchers who were sort of uh, uh, shut down in their own careers, basically. Uh, so interestingly enough, I um, started my uh, talk by playing a video of uh, the Grateful Dead singing We, we Will Survive. <laughs> And then I started the talk by saying something along the lines of, you know, three months ago when I was asked to do this, I had never taken a psychedelic. So for the last three months, I've tried essentially every psychedelic uh, possible.
1: And you can still talk.
0: (laughs) And what's funny, this guy in the audience says, man, that is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't believe you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I had not at that time. Uh, But the reason I, I bring this up is, you know, I certainly have had an interest in this. And I'm sure you're uh, familiar with the term seekers, right? Uh, These people who run around to have these different experiences to meet potentially endless numbers of gurus, uh, try psychedelics. So my wife and I have two friends who I would use that term with. And one of them was talking to my wife and she said, my God, you have to try iboga and i don't know if you know it's a west african bark i think of a tree you know it changed my life i gained all of these insights etc cetera, etc cetera. and then another friend said no you have to try the toad which is of course the sonoran uh, desert toad right that has a gland that secretes this hallucinogenic so my wife listened to these people and she called me up she said what do you think of this i really want to try this and i said well okay, well, try it then. I mean, you know, uh, there's a shaman involved with one and a a guide and another. I said, yeah, do it. She goes, no, no, no. I want you to do it first.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me of some kind of grade school playground thing. Like, why don't you and him
0: fight? You know, or something like that. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) So I said to my wife, I said, sure, I'll I'll try it. So I tried both of these experiences actually. And those are the only psychedelics I've ever done. And that was uh, a a few years ago, but you were talking about this feeling of wholeness and specifically with the, uh, actually with both of them in one scenario of this iboga experience, it asked you to think of yourself and those close to you. And what did you, in, in the context of a tree? And, you know, some people would say, well, I'm this type of tree, but there are these other trees around me who are dying. And in my own experience, I saw myself as a redwood, but uh, surrounded by a forest of redwoods. And, you know, I sort of went from the ground up to look over this, and it just was sort of this uh, never-ending forest of redwoods. And then I went underneath the ground and looked, and all the roots were intertwined. So in some ways, that was the experience of oneness from that aboga experience. And then I tried the toad, which is a very interesting experience because it's very short lasting, but you go from like zero miles an hour to a million miles an hour. And uh, But for me, what happened is I suddenly was out, if you will, in space, surrounded by all of these stars and with this immense feeling of interconnectedness and love. And in fact, over this 15 or 20 minutes experience, I was just relaxed, breathing with tears of joy for this sense of oneness. So it, it is interesting how these psychedelics can really have that type of experience. Now, I would say... Not everyone had that experience, but I went in there without any fear or anxiety. And I think your mental state when you go in could dictate you know, the nature of that experience.
1: Yeah, this is deep water here. Um, I know we're gonna finish pretty soon, uh, but I wanna, if I could just talk a, a little bit about, some of what might be going on in the brain in these sort of things. Uh, you're reminding me of this line from Gurdjieff, the mystic last century early on, who said, drugs are like a telescope. They'll show you what's possible, but then you've got to walk there on your own. And I think that's true for a lot of things. People go away for a one-day workshop or they'll have a meditation retreat and they'll be like, whoa, I've been there. You know, you come back, you just feel all glowy and you think it'll last forever. No, as <laughs> Jack Kornfield titled his, titled his book After the Ecstasy, The Laundry, right? And the question then becomes, how do you gradually stabilize? How do you stabilize? So there you had uh, an opening into what's true, the fundamental oneness of everything. And the question becomes how can that be stabilized inside us and established? It reminds me of um, the Milarepa, the great Tibetan sage who described his life of practice as, in the beginning, nothing came, in the middle, nothing stayed, in the end, nothing left. So how do we, first of all, move into that second phase where we start to experience things, but they're not yet a trait, they're states. They're not yet a trait. They're not yet baked into us in our bodies. And then over time, move from that second stage to the third stage in which the acquisition of a new trait, a new trait of inner peace, of a sense of oneness, of gobsmacked gratitude and, you know, as kind of your background mood as you move through your day, even as you deal with the crud in it, you know, becomes really, really baked into you. That's the fundamental process, right? And I'm very interested in how we can draw upon what's known about how we learn in the broadest sense and form new changes of structure and function neurologically as the underlying basis for this process of durable personal transformation, durable healing, that really stays with you. And simple things like when you're feeling something useful, stay with it for a breath or longer. As you know, the saying, neurons that fire together can wire together. So the longer they fire together, the more they tend to wire together. Just the duration. You know, keep it going for a breath, 10 seconds. Feel it in your body. The more embodied an experience, the more you're going to learn from it. The more it's going to sink into you. It's going to become part of you. You're going to become increasingly grateful, confident. And happy through internalization, and like I said earlier, focus on what's rewarding about it. You know, get that heightened sense of reward, which increases the sensitivity of the brain to the experience you're having at the time, and thus the brain's capacity to learn from it. So these are things we can do. We can help ourselves. You know, each day, uh, just like Milarepa said, you know, uh, and
0: after a while, nothing leaves. No, I think that's exactly right. Now, you you use the term timelessness. Maybe you can comment on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, that's the seventh practice. And it is grounded in a sense of respect for the Buddhist tradition, uh, which certainly the teachings of the Buddha spoke to, something that is translated routinely as unconditioned, deathless, timeless not subject to arising and passing away what in the world was he talking about and then also you have other traditions not secular ones that are that speak of some kind of ground some divinity uh that now we're starting to move more into religion uh, the ultimate matters and um so in that seventh practice of finding timelessness i explore First, what could actually be happening in the brain reasonably plausibly as people move through nirvana, these classic experiences that people describe in which there's complete cessation of ordinary consciousness and an encounter with something, you know, which is not a thing, something, and uh, then there's a return that's transformative right? What in the world could be going on there? So that's what that's about. And, and for me, there are three ways to understand the possibility of the unconditioned. First, the simplest, most obvious is we can disengage from our conditioned habits and patterns of mind. And we can increasingly rest in and engage in what is effectively unconditioned, which is to say, for example, awareness or spaciousness in which conditioned phenomena occur. Just awareness alone. Awareness, yeah, is conditioned by being a human animal, uh, grounded in evolution, enabled by these various biological, physical processes. Okay, awareness in that sense is conditioned. But inside that frame, awareness is like a giant whiteboard. Anything can be represented there. Any song, any sound, horror films, Bambi, Godzilla, the whole kit and caboodle, right? So resting in what is effectively unconditioned is beautiful, it's peaceful. Uh, conditioned phenomena come and go. If you chase after them, you'll suffer. But the space in which they occur is reliable. It's always available to us. So that's the first way. The second way to understand uh, what I call timelessness or the unconditioned is as an extraordinary state of consciousness within ordinary reality it's a samadhi, it's a jhana, it's a non-dual kind of extraordinary experience. What could be happening in the brain that enables it, the, the kind of experience that people talk about in all kinds of traditions, really quite similarly. So clearly there must be some commonality in the underlying neurobiology of it within ordinary reality, within the natural frame. So that's the second way I think we can understand timelessness. And I've known very realistic people, lawyers, PhD business consultants who've done these traditional trainings, gone all the way out. And they're walking and talking and they have mortgages and pets and dogs and families and they're functioning. But they're profoundly changed by that training they went through. The third way to understand timelessness is the ultimate matter of what could be meaningfully, categorically distinct from the conditioned Big Bang universe the ultimate, the infinite, the divine, the absolute, something or other. And I'm comfortable with people who want to stop with just the first two, uh, either because they're agnostic to what's beyond or they're a committed atheist, that's their stance. Just, you know, it's the meat, it occurs, it arises, it dies, deal with it. <laughs> you know. Okay, good. But me, I think the Buddha was on to, to more than ordinary reality, as all, including all the wild stuff in ordinary reality. And and I am too. And, and I feel a longing in my heart and an intuition of a kind of ground that are or, or infinite or ultimate field of unconditionality, minimally, if not as well, consciousness and benevolence, the three attributes I think that we hear spoken of routinely about that which could be transcendental that which could transcend the ordinary big bang universe so that's what that territory is about and uh, it's no mistake it's the it's the ultimate if i could just to uh, tick not han you know always one of the most realized beings etc Yeah, i'd like to give a little quote from him that might just summarize it
0: you know i think he's uh 97 now oh man he's the best he went back to his uh village where he first trained so he's in ways vietnam yeah. yeah yeah here's the uh, quick
1: quote ready things appear and disappear according to causes and conditions the true nature of things is not being born and not dying our true nature is the nature of no birth and no death and we must touch our true nature in order to be free
0: yeah and i i think that's exactly right sort of the the freedom of sort of the infinite in some ways, I think. And uh, that's a challenge for a lot of people because it's hard to see that, uh, especially when you're starting out. And it's extraordinary because all of this is within your control in your brain. And frankly, as you know, it it doesn't cost anything. (laughs) I think of, it's funny, I think of practice
1: myself as something, first of all, it's important for people to have a practice of some kind. What's your practice? So, you know, here we are, cruddy things are happening, we're having natural upsetting reactions to it, perfectly normal, big breath. How are you practicing with that? Minimally, how are you helping yourself be with it? Then are you helping yourself letting go, and then helping yourself letting in? What's your practice? So critically important to have a practice at all, and to have the foundational factor of practice, which is being on your own side, treating your own life like it really matters, that your suffering matters and you want to do something about it. So, you know, having a practice. But once we have a practice, boy, sky's the limit, right? We can grow and grow and grow. And for me, a lot of my purpose of my practice is to clear away the crud on the window. So the light that I it and sense and experience that's always already shining can come through more readily.
0: No, I think that's your ability to see the true nature of reality. Let me ask you a question, if you will, which may be controversial. Or uh, So in terms of consciousness, do you feel that it is simply a neurochemical process uh, and that essentially when you die, that is done, or do you feel that there is an external aspect of this that connects all of us, perhaps?
1: Great question. Um, First, I think that it's important to ground that question in biology and the experiences and awareness of a squirrel, a cat, a monkey, potentially a, a frog right? Maybe worms are zombies. I don't think frogs are zombies. I think frogs are aware of stimuli and a lot of the neurological hardware that enables frogs to move through states of wakefulness and sleep. And you can anesthetize a frog. You can bring a frog out of anesthesia. Many of that underlying hardware is very similar in its basic form to our own hardware of awareness uh, and consciousness so minimally i think it's important to ground it so my own view is that most if not all minimally most of the causes and conditions of our own stream of consciousness our own flow of experiences our own capacity for awareness is contained within causes and conditions inside the ordinary big bang universe now the question becomes and where people like the dalai lama and and as you well know have a strong view that the question becomes is there some kind of transcendental consciousness that's meaningfully distinct from the consciousness the awareness the experiences that are enabled by entirely natural processes that's the key question and my own view is yes I'm a transcendentalist, and I think one of the attributes of the transcendental is consciousness, which in my view is, as the transcendental is, is woven into the fabric of the natural universe, but is meaningfully distinct from it. And so, yeah, yeah, I would take my stand there. That said, I think uh, there's a lot of good work to be done within entirely natural processes in terms of relieving suffering and promoting happiness, love, and wisdom.
0: You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you recall uh, my book I mentioned. um,
1: I love your book. Your book's awesome. (laughs) Seriously, it's great. Out of the Magic Shop? You know, like, whoa, it's great. And so much good teaching in it. No, it's great.
0: Well, thank you. But uh, I had this near-death experience, uh, if you recall. And, uh, you know, it was the traditional one of you start interacting on some level with those who passed who are welcoming you you're going down a river of light and at the end of the river is this incredible bright uh, light that at some point you're going to merge into and uh you know many people have experienced that and have like changed their entire lives uh based on that and um, it was interesting because as i got closer to that uh, being engulfed in that light, I knew at that point I was actually dead. You know, I suddenly said no, and then the next thing I did, I woke up in the intensive care unit. For me, I always looked at it as strictly a biologic process where, you know, you're losing blood supply, and uh, there's immense output from your occipital cortex, and these areas of embedded memories typically related to you know, relationships uh, long going. While others, you know, they see some form of the thing they worship uh, in a religious sense. And uh, it's, it's sort of interesting though, how there is uh, the spectrum of beliefs.
1: Oh yeah. No, it's, I think you're, you're at the exact right question. Um, you know, what are the causes? What are the sources of this? And are there causes, are there factors that are meaningfully distinct from the meat, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> ordinary stuff, <laughs> you know, uh, in this universe. And you know, just as we finish, I would say for myself that an attitude that is that has really helped me is, I think, very close to the spirit of the Buddha. It's to come down to practice. What's your direct experience? What's it like to be you? Where does it hurt? What would help? And keep going, you know. keep going. Don't let the daily muck suck your vision entirely into the trenches and the swamps. Yeah, deal with the mud and the muck, but from time to time, look up, look at the distance, see that mountain of possibility that is your birthright as well, and keep on
0: going. You know, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. I think he had a statement that without the mud, the lotus cannot grow. Yeah, that's right. No mud, no <laughs> lotus. It's very Zen. Yeah, yes, that's right. Exactly. And I, uh, uh, so I think people need to accept the mud, but realize that uh, there is a lotus uh, within that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think about your life, Jim, uh, you know, that you spoke about really endearingly uh, in your book, just the mud in your childhood and i think it's really important to appreciate though it's not only mud maybe mud is a necessary condition you know as a fertilizer right but that lotus in addition to mud needs light and air and room and space and i think about your own benefactor you know the woman who ran that Magic Shop and other benefactors you've had along the way. And so it's, you know, in addition to the mud, right? No
0: sunlight, no lotus, no
1: love, no lotus, no friendship, no lotus, no sangha, no community, no lotus, no, yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I I think the other aspect to that though is that you also have to change how you perceive the world. You know, if you're all self-ruminating, and woe is me, my life is horrible, and you cannot ever get out of that, then you cannot see all these extraordinary possibilities. And and I think, as I said in the book, when I changed how I saw the world, uh, the world changed how it reacted to me. And I think that is so true of so many of these practices, because once you begin these practices, you start seeing the world a completely different way. And... By the nature of how you carry yourself, uh, how you present yourself, you know, the way you speak, uh, your voice intonation, your body language, your facial expressions, that starts changing as you become imbued with these feelings of positivity and suddenly you realize that actually everyone wants to help you. And I think the nature is people do want to help, but they want to help someone who is ready to be helped. And I guess this is another quote, right? Uh, The teacher arrives when the student is ready. Right
1: There you are. That's true. Well, I want to thank you for having me on. I think it's great. It's been a lot of fun to talk with
0: you. No, it's always a pleasure. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com